Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hello, and welcome to the Rackman Review. I'm Gideon Rackman, Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator of the Financial Times. This week, we're looking at Southeast Asia and how the region's faring in an era of soaring tensions between the United States and China. My guest is James Crabtree, the recently appointed Executive Director of the International Institute for Strategic Studies in Singapore. So can Asian peace and prosperity survive a new era of superpower rivalry? The past 30 years have been a golden era for Southeast Asia a region that was ripped apart by wars and internal conflicts during the Cold War, has experienced a long period of sustained economic growth and peace. Countries like Singapore and Malaysia, Thailand and Indonesia have managed to stay on good terms with both China and the United States. But now tensions are rising between Beijing and Washington amidst talk of a decoupling of the Chinese and American economies, or even a war in the South China Sea or over Taiwan. Every year, the International Institute for Strategic Studies holds a security conference, which has traditionally been one of the few places where the American and Chinese military meet and exchange views and occasionally insults. Here's James Mattis, who was then US Defense Secretary, speaking at the IISS conference in Singapore in 2018. China's militarization of artificial features in the South China Sea includes the deployment of anti-ship missiles, surface-to-air missiles, electronic jammers, and more recently, the landing of bomber aircraft at Woody Island. Despite China's claims to the contrary, the placement of these weapon systems is tied directly to military use for the purposes of intimidation and coercion. In response, a Chinese general, He Lia, pushed back firmly. The garrison and deployment of weapons in the reefs and islands in the South China Sea are within the scope of China's sovereignty. It's allowed by international law. Irresponsible talks by any other country are interference in China's internal affairs. This year, the so-called Shangri-La dialogues had to be cancelled because of COVID-19. But the IISS has still brought out its annual report which provides a good chance to take stock of a region that's increasingly at the very centre of international tensions. In the West, it's now common to talk about a new Cold War. So when I spoke to James Crabtree, I asked him first if it's also common in Southeast Asia to see things that way. I think there's a lot of nervousness in Southeast Asia about the relationship between the, the two great powers of the region, between the US and China. And the more assertive uh, America becomes, the more nervous Southeast Asia becomes. It's right there on China's doorstep. China has replaced the United States as the dominant economic power in Asia. And so the dilemma for the Biden administration as it tries to build ties with Southeast Asia um, is that if it pushes too hard against China, then it makes people in this region very nervous. And so it, it has to strike a very delicate balance 
between pushing back against China, but not doing so uh, in a way that, that leaves countries in the region that is the, the central battleground of this new Cold War in, in Southeast Asia, feeling like the US is being too pushy. And of course, Southeast Asia suffered appallingly in the first Cold War, the Vietnam War, and so on. It's had in this long period of peace, an incredible economic expansion. But from what you're saying, are people more nervous now than they've been for some time? I mean, in the period a while back when I lived there, it was a real period of optimism linked to the boom in China. Is there a sense that kind of history is turning again? I think we haven't quite got to that point yet. I think the Biden administration has, to some degree, calmed nerves in the sense that Mr. Biden is is much less erratic than Mr. Trump. And therefore, actually, there hasn't been much argy-bargy in and over Southeast Asia. However, the dominant institution in Southeast Asia, ASEAN, the the 10-member grouping of Southeast Asian states, is under pressure in two respects. Firstly, you have the crisis in Myanmar, which is asking a lot of questions about ASEAN's effectiveness, But then you have the attempt led by the Americans, but also the Japanese, the Australians and the Indians to come up with a new coalition in Asia, often branded the Quad, and including some European countries to come together and push back against China. And so that's happening. And and that makes Southeast Asia very nervous because the more that you have this proto-alliance between the countries that are skeptical about China, the more Southeast Asia appears to be a bit of a sideshow in its own region. And so that's what really worries people here. I don't think we're at the stage that people are seeing imminent land wars in Southeast Asia of the thought that you would have had in the 60s and 70s. I think the worry is that Southeast Asia has had this long period of peace, but that it's in danger of being marginalized. And then down the line, you could look at potential military conflict in Taiwan or, or elsewhere. Yeah, I mean, what is the state of military tensions now? Because obviously, rhetorically... The U.S.'s rhetoric has changed. It's become much more openly confrontational towards China. China's ramped up the warlike rhetoric about Taiwan and, you know, generally is becoming more assertive. But in terms of the sort of actual jostling out there in the high seas, the American freedom of navigation operations, Chinese pressure on Taiwan, sitting in your vantage point at the International Institute of Strategic Studies, do you see an increase in those kinds of overt military tensions? Sitting in my literal vantage point, so I sit in Singapore and I'm looking out of our window from our office over the the Singapore Straits, I don't think we've got to the point where you have a very significant ratcheting up of military tension. But what you do have is some of the constituent ingredients which could lead to that. So you clearly have a, a naval arms race in the region, particularly on the Chinese side, where the Chinese are investing very heavily in new military equipment. And now you have a question for the Americans, which is, well, how are they going to respond to that? You had the former head of U.S. Indo-PACOM, the U.S. Indo-Pacific Command, saying in congressional testimony that he could imagine a military conflict with Taiwan in five or six years. And therefore, there's lots of questions about whether or not the U.S. is very seriously going to start putting in new money, new capabilities to try and take on the Chinese uh, in their own backyard. The signs there are mixed. There is new money going in into various things like the defense of Guam, the U.S. naval base, but also some signs in the other direction. So recently, the U.S. had to take its only aircraft carrier out of this region in order to go and help with the the withdrawal from Afghanistan. 
Um, and so there's always this worry in, in Asia one way or another that the Americans might get distracted from their uh, commitments elsewhere. So one of the big dilemmas for the Biden administration is how serious is it really about Asia? How is it going to put its money and its military might where its mouth is? And then what's the consequence of that? Because if they do that more seriously, then obviously that means that the potential for confrontation, either deliberate or accidental, increases. And I mean, your answer kind of points to some of the ambiguity in the Southeast Asian response, because on the one hand, you say they really don't want a new confrontation, which sets them a whole set of very difficult questions. On the other hand, as you imply, they really don't want America to withdraw either. They want this balance to be maintained, essentially. I mean, or is that a particularly Singaporean point of view? Since you're sitting in Singapore, I guess views would differ across the region. Yeah, I think there is a spread of views. There are some countries in Southeast Asia, like Cambodia and Laos, who are much closer to China. There are some, probably only Vietnam now, who are plausibly much closer to the US. Isn't that ironic, James? Yep, there's an irony. Vietnam is now the sort of staunchest ally and also ironic in a second sense, given this is meant to be the free and open Indo-Pacific. So one of the most enthusiastic supporters of the free and open Indo-Pacific is a kind of neo-Marxist regime in Vietnam. But putting that to one side, the median point in Southeast Asia exactly has this dual aim. Southeast Asia does not want the United States to leave, and that was always a nervousness in the Trump era, that Trump might have a rush of blood to the head and do some kind of deal with the Chinese and wash his hands of the region, and off he went. And to that extent, Biden has been reassuring because he's much more focused on uh, rekindling the U.S. alliance structure in the region and trying to reassure allies that he's going to stay there. But while they want the U.S. to remain, they don't want the U.S. to become too pushy because that is then seen as needlessly antagonizing China and potentially destabilizing to growth at a time when Southeast Asia is still predominantly focused on vaccines and COVID recovery and trying to navigate uh, the new trade complex environment in the aftermath of the Trump years in areas like semiconductors and, and regional supply chains. So that is a very delicate balance. And it's one that the Biden administration has not really yet worked out how to strike. In the coming weeks, you will see the first taste of really how pushy the US is going to be on China when we have the results of the Pentagon China Review led by Eli Ratner, a senior official at the Pentagon working for Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin. And so then you'll get a sense maybe for the first time of quite how forward-leaning the U.S. is going to be. And the risk is that if the U.S. decides to be very assertive against China, then it will uh, find itself being less popular in Southeast Asia. And so that's sort of the balance that it has to strike between pushing back against China, but also being mindful of having to carry this region with it, because as Europe in the old Cold War was the central battleground, so in the end, the new Cold War, when it's not being fought in cyberspace, um, Southeast Asia is really the place where this is going to be fought out, maritime Southeast Asia, and to some extent, the kind of land part of Southeast Asia as well. You mentioned uh, Europe in passing, but there is actually even renewed European interest in these growing tensions. You know, here in the UK, our one of our new aircraft carriers, the Queen Elizabeth, has just set sail to do a mission through Southeast Asia, accompanied by a Dutch carrier with American Marines and planes on board. That's got some attention here in Britain. Is it regarded in the region as of any significance? I think there's been some interest in the fact that there is renewed European interest in this part of the world. So yes, you have the British Indo-Pacific Tilt and the carrier group, which should come to Singapore at the end of July, 
You also have the, the French who style themselves in any case as an Asian power. And then the Germans and the Dutch, and to some extent the European Union itself, have all been making overtures in this direction. I think there's still some doubt here as to what this amounts to and what exactly the Europeans are going to be able to offer. So on the one hand, there's a little bit of nervousness that once you add together President Biden's renewed focus on the Quad and a slightly more muscular diplomacy uh, in that respect, and then you add all of these random European powers that all of this becomes a little bit messy and it begins to feel slightly neo-colonial with all of these outside powers meddling in Southeast Asia. But I think if the European powers play their cards right and they prove that by investing money and resources and military capabilities in this part of the world that they're actually doing something useful, they're not needlessly antagonizing China, but they're bringing other things to the party in terms of areas that the countries here want to learn about, like cybersecurity or other maritime capabilities, then, you know, I think there's a, a reasonable sense that there's a place for Europe in this part of the world as Asia becomes the most central focus of geopolitics. Then I think certainly the European countries can find a way of winning acceptance if they play their cards right. I mean, we've, we've concentrated a bit on the military aspect of all this, but so far, and perhaps hopefully into the future, this confrontation won't become a, a military confrontation. And a lot of the tensions between the US and China are now playing out over trade and over technology. We've seen in Europe, particularly actually in the UK, America forcing countries to choose, essentially to simplify. Britain was pretty well arm-twisted by America to drop using Chinese 5G technology. Are Southeast Asian countries coming under similar pressures? And how are they going to respond to that? So I think the big picture here is that decoupling is likely to continue and that that is going to put some pressure on countries in Southeast Asia. So a country like Singapore, where I sit, likes to trade with both the US and China. That's true for Malaysia and Thailand and everybody else. And so nobody really wants to be in a position where if you're making electronics or, uh, or telecom equipment that you, in a sense, have to decide which of these two blocks you're going to trade with. So that is a, a real nervousness because the heart of Southeast Asia is trade and supply chains. So people are watching this very carefully and I think hoping that the two superpowers can come to some new modus operandi, which is uh, some way short of kind of serious decoupling. The real challenge for the Americans here, however, is that while they remain, for now at least, arguably the dominant military power in this region, the US has really lost its position of economic leadership in two respects. Firstly, that it used to be the biggest economy in this part of the world, which it isn't anymore. The Chinese have long surpassed them on that. But it also used to be the architect of regional trade and the nation that set the rules or created the framework that set the rules. But it's also lost that role and so the U.S. Has, is in danger of having a rather unbalanced approach to this part of the world where it you know, carries a big sword uh, but doesn't have very much to offer in its wallet. And, and so that is another big challenge for Biden. How can he begin to reinstate that role that the U.S. has traditionally had as an economic leader um, in Asia at a time in which the obvious thing to do, for instance, rejoining the uh, CPTPP regional trade agreement is something that is very, very difficult from a domestic politics point of view in the United States. So we've talked quite a lot about how the US is playing it, but how is Beijing playing it? I mean, as they're faced with this uh, more confrontational United States, uh, with more of a competition, it seems to me in the past they've tended to rely on threats quite often against countries that do things they don't like. You know, the South Koreans were hit with sanctions, even the Singaporeans 
briefly, is that still their primary weapon to slap people around the sort of head if they do something they don't like? Or are they reassessing how they're going to play this kind of battle for influence and power in Southeast Asia? I think the Chinese approach has been fairly erratic over the last year. My sense is they're mostly waiting to see how the Biden administration decides to play this. So you had the fireworks in Alaska when Secretary Blinken um, and his Chinese counterpart traded blows in a very public sense. But there haven't been that many public spats in the way that were true in the Trump years um, on either side when you know Mike Pompeo went around shooting from the hip. This has been more measured In terms of how China is playing Southeast Asia, well, you have seen some examples in the region of China being very coercive in its diplomacy, not Southeast Asia, but Australia is the best example of that, where Australia angered China by attempting to suggest it would be a good idea to have uh, an international investigation into the origins of COVID and then got a whole bunch of economic sanctions. And so those parts of the toolkit do exist. China's approach in Southeast Asia so far has been a little subtler, but still, you know, it's been very successful in the sense that you will see the Southeast Asian countries are now much less likely to publicly contest Chinese views, for instance, over the South China Sea. So if you go back three or four years, you had countries like the Philippines that were willing to take China to court. Now that's much less likely. I mean, I mean, people look at what happens to countries like Australia and they think we don't want that to happen to us. And so countries in Southeast Asia are are quite circumspect about doing things which uh, annoy the Chinese because in the end, China is the vital economic partner. They know that China can and will use this coercive type of economic diplomacy. And so people are are nervous about crossing those red lines with Beijing. So if anything, I'm putting it all together, it seems from what you're saying that there's been a slight drift towards not antagonizing China and therefore towards the sort of Beijing side of the equation. I mean, as you say, Southeast Asia is absolutely central to this struggle. But I guess the bigger economies in East Asia as a whole are not there. Uh, The national economies would be Japan, South Korea, India. And there it seems to me that at least the Japanese and the Indians are tilting more clearly towards the United States now than they were, you know, a few years back. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. So you've seen a more of a division within Asia, where the Quad nations in particular, so India has moved very dramatically over the last year in the aftermath of the border conflict in the Himalayas, It's probably the most significant geopolitical shift that India has moved much more decisively into the China skeptic camp. But Australia's views have hardened, even under new Japanese Prime Minister Suga, there have been some moves towards hardening, for instance, the meeting that uh, Suga-san had in Washington with Biden, had some really quite robust things to say about Taiwan. And the Japanese establishment is, is looking very seriously at what may happen in Taiwan and is very worried about it. So I think you see most of these countries, Japan and South Korea in particular, have to navigate this delicate balance that they are very economically intertwined with China. China is an enormous economy and only getting bigger. But I think you do see this hardening. Whereas in Southeast Asia, I wouldn't say that many countries in Southeast Asia have gone decisively over to the Chinese side, but they're still trying to balance between the superpowers and they're certainly wary of doing things that that would earn the the wrath of Beijing. Last question on, on the Korean Peninsula. I mean, because, of course, in the first couple of years of the Trump administration, that was the number one security issue in Asia. It now seems to have died down a bit. 
Is that because the North Koreans have changed their behavior or because the Americans have lost interest? And do you think it's liable to flare up again? I mean, nobody really knows what's going to happen. But I mean, I think the best guess is it's really just a matter of time. I mean, the North Korean regime uses its provocations, whether it's firing the odd missile at Japan or finding some other reason to make a nuisance of itself to attract attention. North Korean regime um, is in one of its weakest positions for a number of years because of the closure of its economy, its already closed economy because of COVID. And so Kim Jong-un recently gave some statements which implied that the country was entering a period of economic hardship. And so it's in those periods in particular where the country becomes less stable. What the U.S. is going to do about this is less clear. I mean, certainly I think you're not going to see President Biden engage in the type of high-profile, creative, and to some degree chaotic diplomacy that led President Trump to come here to Singapore and have his high-profile summit and get very little out of it. I think the U.S. is much more concerned with trying to rekindle the troubled alliance that it has with South Korea, which is you know, one of the central nodes in its regional network of alliances and one that is in probably the, the most need of, a, of an overhaul. So I think that will be more their focus than North Korea until Kim decides to attract everyone's attention again. That was James Crabtree of the International Institute of Strategic Studies in Singapore ending this edition of the Rachman Review. Thanks for listening. I hope you'll join us again next week. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.